We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility uh, Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 111 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo Early Lunar Module Design and Saturn SA-3. During 1962, NASA faced three major tasks. First, the mode selection and its defense, which we covered in episodes 106 through 109. Second, keeping North American moving on the command and surface modules, which was covered in episode 110, and third, finding a contractor to develop the separate landing vehicle required for that approach, which we will cover today in episode 111. Work at NASA's lead Apollo Center on the lunar excursion vehicle had started in late 1961, when designers began looking at the advantages of lunar orbit rendezvous. But this work was just analysis of general rather than specific configurations. Werner von Braun's group in Huntsville had also studied concepts for soft landing. For manned landers weighing several thousand kilograms, they considered liquid-fueled engines more practical than those using solid propellants. Houston engineers also drew on studies conducted by the Langley Research Center in Virginia. By mid-September 1961, Gilroof's people had roughly worked out a mission plan and figured out the kind of vehicle that might do the job. From September to December, they tried to nail down systems operations more precisely, particularly in the area of propulsion and communications. The mysterious nature of the moon's surface received much attention as well, since a safe lunar landing presented some tricky design problems. Manned Spacecraft Center engineers considered such things as the effect of engine exhaust on the surface layer, the influence of dust layers on landing gear footpads, and surface dust effects on optical and radar landing aids. Although a model of the lunar surface drawn from the best available data was used for these engineering studies, Gilruth's men realized that there were varying views among scientists about the lunar surface characteristics, especially the depth of the dust layer. By early 1962, while others fought for their chosen mode, spacecraft specialists had begun to move beyond the study phase. They worked out details for building the lunar module and started preparing for its procurement. The newly created Houston Apollo Spacecraft Office 
drafted a lengthy document in April defending the hardware and operational feasibility of Lunar Rendezvous and the excursion vehicle. Basic concepts of the mission profile and docking and of storage arrangements for the lander inside the spacecraft adapter were fairly firm. Many aspects of guidance and navigation and of operations in lunar orbit were well understood. Several theoretical vehicle shapes were depicted. Velocity requirements were delineated. Vehicle weights up to 9,200 kilograms, including a 25% contingency margin, were estimated. And mission development plans using the Little Joe 2 and the Saturn C-1B and C-5 were considered. William Rector was assigned to Frick's Apollo spacecraft office staff to start preliminary design of the Lunar Excursion Module, also known as the LEM, L-E-M. Using command module documentation as a guide, Rector wrote a work statement. In the statement, he drew on technical expertise from within the project office and from other center organizations, particularly Max Faget's Research and Development Directorate. Rector relied heavily on advice from the Spacecraft Research Division in preparing the procurement documents. Rector began with a real shoestring operation, a small group of scientists for communications, propulsion, and overall configuration, and for assembling information and writing the requests for proposals. Early in May, Rector and his team finished the preliminary statement of work and started on the formal proposal request. Rector was quoted as saying, quote, I'll never forget, all we did was just sort of turn the command module upside down and put a window and a propulsion stage in it, end quote. From this point on, Rector and his group continually revised the proposal to include additional information on visibility requirements, crew locations, and propulsion systems as it became available. They also took first cuts at the guidance and communication systems, among others, trying to work out the basic interreaction between each subsystem and to get them into the work statement. The spacecraft office wanted the work statement in its final form by mid-July, when the early drafts went to Washington for review. Joseph Shea in the Office of Manned Spaceflight insisted that the vehicle should be configured for unmanned as well as manned flight because NASA might want to use it to ferry large loads to the lunar surface. Everyone in Houston from Gilruth on down claimed that such a lander would be unreliable. The lunar module design should not be compromised by throwing in this dual requirement. After a series of meetings, including a last-minute session with Gilruth and Frick, Rector carried a work statement to the headquarters that left the door open for future negotiations. To avoid further delay in procurement, he had inserted a clause that obligated the contractor to study the advantages and drawbacks of automatic versus manned modes 
and to assist the agency in coming to a final decision. The procurement documents were approved and issued to 11 aerospace firms during the latter half of July 1962. Since responsibility for the Apollo Command Module and Service Modules already rested with Gilruth's Manned Spacecraft Center, NASA assigned Houston to procure and manage the lunar excursion vehicle. NASA's officials decided to hire a separate contractor to develop the lunar landing spacecraft. North American had made a strong bid for the lander when the lunar travel mode became a hot issue Although the company was sent a request for proposals in July 1962, it was first discouraged and then precluded from bidding on the contract. NASA evidently believed that North American already had all the Apollo development work that it could handle. Facing the loss of the glamour associated with landing its own craft on the moon, North American did not give up gracefully. Harrison Storms carried his case to Administrator Webb, suggesting that his company be selected as sole source contractor for the lander, farming out most of the actual hardware work. This arrangement would have made North American the systems manager responsible for integrating all payload vehicles. Legal and procurement officers within NASA warned Webb against this approach. They believed NASA should contract the lander directly to permit an industrial firm to take over this task without competition, even though NASA would have the final approval of the selection of the subcontractors, might be regarded as a delegation of NASA's inherent responsibility to perform its procurement function. Anyway, requests for proposals on the lander were issued on July 25, 1962, and a bidder's briefing was held in Houston on August 2nd. On September 5th, barely five weeks after the issuance, NASA announced that nine companies had submitted proposals and that the agency planned to award the contract in six to eight weeks. Of the 11 companies originally invited to bid, only McDonnell and North American had not submitted proposals. Evaluations began at Houston immediately after the proposals were received and they ended on September 28th. At Ellington Air Force Base in mid-September, company officials made formal presentations to the Source Evaluation Board and a number of technical management panels. NASA's team then made one-day visits to the company's plants to see what facilities each bidder could draw upon to support the development of the program. Early in October, officials from Houston presented their findings and recommendations to NASA headquarters. Holmes wanted the selection completed, approved, and announced by the middle of the month. But the last-minute demands by the PSAC postponed the contract award for three weeks. On November 7th, NASA formally announced that the Grumman Aircraft Engineering Corporation of Bethpage, New York, would build the Lunar Excursion Module. Several bidders had been very close, both technically and managerially. William Rector later said, quote, Any of them could have done the job. 
Grumman didn't turn in the only good design, end quote. A major factor in Grumman's selection had been its facilities. Spacious engineering design and office accommodations, ample manufacturing space, and a clean room complex for vehicle assembly and testing. The Manned Spacecraft Center continued its studies even after the request had been issued. Rector remembered that MSC's designs were really beginning to take shape and they were getting a much better feel for how they wanted the limb to work. The Apollo Spacecraft Project Office had been realigned on August 1st to give the lunar module an organization of its own. Rector became project officer for the lander and Thomas Markley for the command and service modules. Rector and Markley then revised the North American Statement of Work to reflect Grumman's and the lunar module's place in the Apollo-Saturn stack, particularly in the arrangement for docking and for stowage within a protective adapter section. Rector's office began defining the lander's subsystems, propulsion, guidance and control, reaction control, electrical power, and instrumentation. The planners hoped to use Mercury and Gemini spacecraft components as well as Apollo command and service module parts in the lunar module. NASA used the term common usage equipment. The guidance and navigation system in the command module received the closest initial scrutiny for common usage parts. MIT studies indicated that the inertia measurement unit, the telescope, and some computer and displays might be modified for the lunar lander. Numerous lunar module-related design problems were examined during the last weeks of 1962. Among the most pressing were requirements for rendezvous and landing radar, and where to put the equipment. Analysis of individual vehicle systems, such as electrical power and thermal control, considerations of mission trajectory from lunar orbit and back, and of abort trajectories from any point during the descent, projections of overall costs for developing the vehicle, and questions of dust layers on the moon, the blast effect caused by the descent engine exhaust, and the influence of these factors on both vehicle design and landing site selection. During this time, NASA decided that the lander's propulsion system would be tested at White Sands in facilities similar to those being developed at Sacramento for testing the service module's main engine. Apollo leaders also expected to flight test the lunar module in New Mexico using the Little Joe 2 booster. Simulating lunar landings to train the crews would require ingenuity. Imitating one-sixth gravity within the Earth's gravitational field is complex and difficult. Three methods were considered, the simplest being a fixed-based simulator like those built for Mercury and Gemini. More complicated plans for tethered flights of a model of the lunar lander at Langley on a huge A-frame structure that used cables and rigging 
to relieve the descent engine of most of its vehicle weight. Now let's spend a little time on the NASA-Grumman relationship. When Grumman was selected for Apollo, the company expanded from an aircraft producer into a major aerospace interest. This transition reflected a long-term resolution and a considerable investment of funds on the part of Grumman's senior management to penetrate the American space market. The story of Grumman's drive for a role in manned spaceflight has a rags-to-riches-like quality. The company had competed for every major NASA contract and, except for the unmanned orbiting astronomical observatory satellite, had never won any. Late in 1958, when NASA was looking for a contractor for the Mercury spacecraft, Grumman had tied with McDonnell in the competition. But, only a short time before, the Navy had awarded several new aircraft development programs to Grumman. In fact, for almost three decades, the word Grumman and carrier-based aircraft had been virtually synonymous. So, to avoid disrupting Navy scheduling and to ensure its contractors' concentration on Mercury, NASA selected McDonnell. Nevertheless, board chairman and company founder Leroy R. Grumman and President E. Clinton Towell had continued to support study programs to strengthen the firm's capabilities and build a cadre of experienced engineering experts. By 1960, Grumman's study group, guided principally by Thomas J. Kelly, had begun to focus on lunar flight, examining lunar spacecraft concepts and guidance and trajectory requirements. The company had also done some guidance work on circumlunar flight for the Navy and passed its findings on to NASA. When NASA awarded the three six-month Apollo feasibility contracts in the latter half of 1960, Grumman again bid unsuccessfully. But Kelly and about 50 engineers continued their investigations full-time without monetary assistance from NASA. Through a series of informal briefings and reports, they kept NASA informed of what they were doing. This group on one occasion said that the lack of funds had limited its investigation to lunar orbit flights. In mid-May, when the three funded feasibility contractors had submitted final reports, Grumman, like several other firms that had gone ahead independently, also presented the results of its study to the Manned Spacecraft Center. Grumman officials had begun to realize just what a massive undertaking the Apollo program would be. After much soul-searching, the company decided not to bid alone for the command module contract. Instead, they joined with General Electric, Douglas, and Space Technologies Laboratories in submitting a proposal. Grumman's chief contribution was the cockpit design and layout. A strengthened space working group was now headed by Joseph G. Gavin, Jr., a Grumman vice president. On three floors of a commercial building near Independence Hall, 
in Philadelphia, the team, sometimes numbering 200 persons from the four companies, worked day and night to put its proposal together. When NASA announced that North American had won the Apollo spacecraft contract at the end of November 1961, the prevalent feeling at Grumman was, as one tired engineer recalled, what do we do now? One segment of the combined proposal, however, gave them some ideas and provided a reason to continue. The four firms had examined many aspects of lunar landing, beyond what was called for by NASA. One central feature of the team explored was the mission mode, only lightly touched on in their proposal request. At the outset of the work on the contract bid, each of the companies had studied a different mode. By chance, Grumman had drawn Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. After the studies had been compared, this approach was recommended in the joint proposal. In the fall and winter of 1961-62, Gavin turned full attention to Lunar Rendezvous and to the separate vehicle that would be needed. Under the leadership of Gavin as Program Director and Robert S. Mulani as Program Manager, the study group had achieved formal status in the corporate structure of Grumman and had acquired a number of Grumman's most experienced engineering and design experts. The team studied configurations of staged versus unstaged vehicles, subsystem requirements, propulsion needs, and weight trade-offs for the lunar lander. Thus, when NASA issued the request for proposals for the lunar module, Grumman was able to include a large amount of solid information in its bid. Even before Lunar Orbit Rendezvous had been chosen, Grumman had begun to build simulators to define the facilities that would be needed for the program and to construct the aerospace building where, in the beginning, all the design work was done. Gavin and his people were confident that they were well-founded in technical requirements of the program. They also recognized that management capabilities would be an important criteria in the selection. They therefore enlisted a team of potential subcontractors and stressed the expertise of these allies. Prominent among the subcontractors were the firms for the two propulsion systems, Bell and Rocketdyne, which included the all-important Variable Throttle Descent Engine. Once Grumman had been selected, NASA agreed that a definitive contract could be written immediately. Grumman officials did not really know what NASA wanted, and neither side fully appreciated the size of the development they were undertaking. The Grumman group entered negotiations under the impression that it was simply going to build the vehicle it had proposed, but that was not what NASA people had in mind. NASA expected that once negotiations were concluded, Grumman would begin a preliminary design phase, redefining the complete spacecraft item by item. In the long run, the definition phase took longer than either party had anticipated. Conferences between NASA and Grumman began on November 19th 
about 80 people from Grumman traveled to Houston for the talks. The Bethpage contingent was broken into a dozen technical teams and several program management, reliability, and support groups. Grumman's negotiation management team comprised Gavin, Kelly, C. William Rath, who the engineering manager, and John Snedeker, the business manager. This management team obviously had more authority than North American's negotiating group had on the command and service modules, which was hardly surprising in the view of Gavin's position as vice president of the company and director of Grumman's space activities. The customer and contract team sat down to define contractual details, reviewing subcontracting plans, work out a technical approach, and spell out management arrangements and procedures for running the program. They examined requirements for facilities and, to avoid the need for building complete vehicles for testing purposes, they determined the number and kind of boilerplate spacecrafts would be required. The total value of the cost plus fixed free contract was set at $385 million, including Grumman's fee of just over $25 million. Apollo officials had intended to finish the negotiations and sign the contract before adjourning, but the Grumman team caught the last available airline flight back to New York on Christmas Eve with a few details still unresolved. Gilruth went to Bethpage early in January to settle these outstanding items with Gavin and get the contract in final form for signing. The Houston Center had also expected headquarters approval during early January. That, too, was delayed. On January 14, 1963, NASA told Grumman to begin development of the lunar module. Although the contract was not signed until early March, at a revised cost figure of $387 million. Now I want to cover how Apollo was intended to fit in with the rest of NASA's activities. In mid-1962, Washington program planners spelled out in detail the interrelationships of Apollo and the total space program. The agency's unmanned satellites and space probes especially Ranger and Surveyor, would have to focus on the lunar mission since the most pressing need was for accurate information about the space environment, such as meteoroid and radiation hazards, and the lunar surface. NASA's choice to subordinate the unmanned science programs to the manned programs brought considerable criticism during the next few years. NASA's leadership was confronted during the summer of and fall of 1962 with the dual task of informing Congress of the status of Apollo and of fitting in its physical plans to the lunar rendezvous approach. Defending Apollo's budget request for fiscal 1963 before the Senate Committee on Appropriations on August 10, 1962, Webb and Lowe reiterated that technical considerations had been important in choosing that approach, but so had cost. Lunar rendezvous for Apollo, although not lessening the agency's needs for the upcoming year, would be cheaper in the long run. 
But Webb pointed out that NASA must get started on both the lunar vehicle and a C-1B version of the Saturn booster in order to develop and test rendezvous procedures in Earth orbit before attempting them in lunar orbit. In late 1962 and early 63, financial resources for NASA were uncertain, particularly the funds needed for the development of the lunar module. Houston needed to know when the money would be available. On October 9th, Holmes asked Siemens to request a supplemental appropriation from Congress, but Siemens refused, believing the current budget was enough to keep on schedule and meet a 1967 landing date. On November 21st of 62, Webb, Holmes, and others met with the President to explore the possibility of an Apollo landing earlier than 1967 and to discuss NASA's budget. Kennedy asked the administrator for a policy statement on the priority of the moon landing within the overall civilian space effort. On November 30th, in a lengthy letter, Webb replied, quote, The objective of our national space program is to become preeminent in all important aspects of this endeavor and to conduct the program in such a manner that our emerging scientific, technological, and operational competence in space is clearly evident. End quote. Apollo the largest single project within NASA, consuming three-fourths of the agency's resources, was being executed with the utmost urgency and was expected to provide a clear demonstration to the world of U.S. accomplishments in space. Although it had the highest priority within NASA, the manned lunar landing program alone would not achieve superiority in space. Webb continued, quote, we must pursue an adequate, well-balanced space program in all areas, end quote. Webb advised against counseling or curtailing space science and technology development programs merely to funnel these funds to Apollo. Although that money, some $400 million, was just the additional amount needed by Apollo for 1963. NASA's top officials were concerned, he said, that attempts to get a budget supplement might jeopardize appropriations for coming years and possibly leave the agency open to charges of cost overruns and poor management. The funds, already appropriated, Webb affirmed, permitted NASA to maintain a driving, vigorous program in the manned space flight area aimed at a target date of late 1967 for the lunar landing. Fitting Apollo's final two jigsaw pieces, the mode and the lunar landing vehicle, into the picture had closed a phase for NASA. For four years, the space agency had been planning, defining, or defending some facet of what led up to be Apollo. NASA now faced a period of development and testing hardware and then a time of attaining the operational experience needed to land men on the moon. The past year, 1962, had been the most strenuous, not only because of Apollo's crowded activities, but because Mercury and Gemini had demanded so much attention. 
Before we leave 1962, I want to cover one more event, and that is the flight of Saturn SA-3, which is also known as Saturn 103. The main objectives of SA-3 were much the same as the previous two Saturn 1 flights, in that it was primarily a test of the first stage booster and its H-1 engines. But NASA also wanted to test the ground support equipment, the vehicle in flight, and Project Highwater. The test of the booster involved the propulsion system, structural design, and control systems. The ground support test involved the facilities and equipment used in the launch, including propellant systems, automatic checkout equipment, launch platform, and support towers. The vehicle in-flight test measured aeroballistics, which confirmed values of aerodynamic characteristics such as stability and performance, propulsion, which ensured the engines could provide enough thrust to propel the vehicle at the correct velocity and trajectory, as well as provide data on the performance of all eight engines during flight. Structural and mechanical, which provided measurements of the vehicle's stress and vibration levels through all phases of flight. And guidance and control, which demonstrated that spacecraft systems could accurately provide orientation and velocity information. The fourth objective, Project Highwater, was the same experiment flown on Saturn SA-2. It involved the intentional release of ballast water from the second and third stages, which allowed scientists to investigate the nature of Earth's ionosphere, as well as noctilucent clouds and the behavior of ice in space. For Project Highwater, tanks in SA-3's dummy upper stages were filled with 87,000 kilograms of water, which was used to simulate the mass of future Saturn payloads. The water was divided roughly in half between the two dummy stages. So far, SA-3 seems identical to SA-2, but there were some differences. SA-3 was the first Apollo flight to carry a full load of propellant, compared to earlier flights that carried only 83% of maximum capacity. This had the effect of testing the rocket's reaction to slower acceleration and extended first stage flight time. Also on this mission, the outboard engines would be allowed to fire until depletion of the rocket's liquid oxygen, rather than the timed cutoffs of previous flights. SA-3 also featured the first use of retro rockets on Apollo hardware. These were the only functional part on SA-3 of what would become the S-1-S-4 stage separation system which would separate the two stages in later missions. These four small, solid rockets were located 90 degrees apart around the top of the S-1 stage with their nozzles aimed up. The rocket would fire at 2 minutes 33 seconds after launch and continue firing for 2 seconds in order to achieve stage separation. Two new transmitters were included on SA-3, the pulse code modulated data link transmitted digital data which would be vital to providing automated spacecraft checkout and launch procedures on future flights. 
The unit operated with high signal strength indicating that it would provide very accurate data. A UHF radio link was also tested on SA-3. It would be used to transmit sensor measurements which could not be effectively transmitted at lower frequencies. A Block 2 antenna panel was tested during flight. It was located between propellant tanks and it was to provide stronger and more consistent signal strength than the Block 1 panel. Temperature measurements of the S-4 dummy stage and interstage fairing were carried out with 18 temperature probes. These were used to detect temperature changes around protuberances on the stage's skin and in the area of the retro rockets during operation. Also, a single panel of Block 2 M31 heat shield insulation, along with one of the spacecraft's calorimeters, was mounted on the base of the first stage by the engine. This test measured heat flux through the new insulation compared to the material normally used on Saturn 1 Block 1 flights. Finally, a new 73-meter umbilical tower and Block 2 swing arm were used for the first time in preparation for future Block 2 Saturn 1 flights. The Saturn 1 launch vehicle components were delivered to Cape Canaveral by the barge Promise on September 19th of 1962, but erection of the first stage booster onto its launch pedestal was delayed until September 21st due to a tropical depression that moved over the Florida Peninsula. The dummy second and third stages and payload were assembled on the booster on September 24th. Ballast water was loaded into the dummy stages on October 31st, and the RP-1 fuel was loaded on November 14th. For this launch, Cape Canaveral Director Kurt DeBoos asked Marshall Space Flight Center Director Bernard Brown, who was overseeing the Saturn project, that no outside visitors be allowed on NASA grounds due to the ongoing tensions of the Cuban Missile Crises. Saturn Apollo 3 was launched at 5.45 p.m. on November 16, 1962 from Launch Complex 34. The only hold in the countdown sequence was for 45 minutes due to a power failure in ground support equipment. The vehicle's four inner H-1 engines shut down at 2 minutes 21 seconds after launch at an altitude of 61 kilometers, and its four outer engines shut down at 2 minutes 29 seconds at an altitude of 71 kilometers. Both sets burned slightly longer than was initially estimated, reaching a maximum velocity of 6,511 kilometers per hour. The vehicle continued to coast to an altitude of 167 kilometers, at which point, 4 minutes 52 seconds after launch, officials sent a terminate command to the rocket, setting off several charges which caused the dummy stages of the vehicle to destruct. The first stage remained intact, though uncontrolled, until it impacted the Atlantic Ocean around 430 kilometers from its launch site. When the Terminate command was sent to the rocket, Primacord charges split both stages longitudinally, instantly releasing its load of water. 
The experiment was tracked by cameras and other equipment on the ground and in aircraft. Observers at Cape Canaveral reported that the ice cloud was visible for about three seconds and was several miles across. The retro rockets fired for about 2.1 seconds. A minor misalignment of the rockets caused a 4.3 degree per second roll of the vehicle, which caused the spacecraft's ST-90 and ST-124P inertial platforms to fail after 15 degrees of rotation. This was considered incidental to the flight and did not impact mission success. NASA declared all engineering goals of the flight achieved, despite occasional issues with telemetry during flight and some measurement data being unusable or partially unusable. Project Highwater was also declared successful, though again, telemetry issues produced questionable results. All things considered, another excellent flight for Saturn. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.